great outdoors. It's a corner of America, a picture from our past. It's quiet towns and rolling hills where time slows down and lasts. Okay, everybody. Howdy doody. That's our intro. Yeah. As you can tell, today on Intername Here, we're going to talk about... Massachusetts. Uh, I was going to tell them Connecticut. <laughs> oh, but, yeah, you know. my bad. Vermont. Yeah. We're going on a new theme. This week, we're doing Massachusetts. So, we figured we could start you off with their epic uh, tourism song. So, you get in touch <laughs> with that number if you ever want to travel there. Yeah, tourism song from... <clears throat> From a long, long, long ago. Yeah, uh, you can check it out on fa- on Family Guy too. So, uh, anyway, so welcome back. We love you. Yeah. Um, Intername here on Facebook. Intername here podcast. Instagram. Intername here podcast at gmail dot com. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Get that out of the way quick. So, welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed Octoberthon. Now we're in the the November getting cold times. Did we get the. Uh, we got one. We're still debating on. We'll we'll figure something out. Yeah. We like the November Rama. If you yeah. do, let us know. November Rama is pretty fun. Um, but if we start doing that, then we got to start doing every month. Yeah, and know? then it loses its edge. So you know, maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. But November Rama, that's got a nice ring to it. Yeah, it's no shave November. <clears throat> I'm gonna again this year. I'm gonna go for it. Not shave this November. I'm probably gonna end up shaving tomorrow mm. or the next day. Uh, you already blew it. <laughs> um so yeah yeah so in case you didn't know it was november and, yeah uh, you know in case you need to know the time changes oh that's well, right although maybe not when you're listening to this that's but, right on uh, saturday the, november what the the fourth yeah november 4th will be the time change so you know for some reason we still do this antiquated old shit yeah unless you're in arizona hawaii or alaska i think <laughs> no, right. maybe some pockets here and there uh no arizona i think it's arizona did not accept it at all they've never uh, okay but if you go to like state. indiana there's there's counties where one county will do it and the next county over will not do it <laughs> right. which has got to be insanely ridiculous to try to figure out right it's yeah. three o'clock now it's four now it's back to three what the hell's going on you know but yeah well mm-hmm. one is probably always considered wrong but <laughs> All right. I've been through Indiana. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. Good talk. That's uh, the big event for this week, I guess. The big, I the, think that was our news stories. Yeah. The, thanks for checking us out. We'll see you guys on the next one. It was an easy um, week. Well, this is not about Massachusetts or the time change, but if you're in Florida, yeah, you need to be on the lookout right now. Because uh, no more than normal in Florida, right? Right. Like, Florida's yeah. always like batshit crazy. But there's a guy driving around, and he's been sighted with a resemblance to a Border Patrol vehicle, and it's a truck that's painted just like a Border Patrol, but uh, on the back of it, it says Booty Patrol. (laughs) It's been spotted in several counties, and the DeSoto County Sheriff's (laughs) Office said the white Chevy Silverado, Chevy, sorry. Where was this again? In Texas? No, Florida. Florida. Um, It bears a green stripe on the side and the words Booty Patrol on the back. (laughs) (laughs) They had trouble finding this guy at first. It's like they had his license plate, and he's got a white truck with green stripes that says (laughs) 
Booty Booty Patrol Patrol. on it. Like, how hard would it be to find this guy? I mean, it is Florida, so... (laughs) You got to wade through the Booty Patrol vehicles to find this one? Um, (laughs) The driver was cited under a law banning vehicles from having red and blue lights that too closely resemble the lights on law enforcement vehicles. So, it probably just changed the lights. I mean, he's obviously not a cop, too, though. So, I mean... Uh, so there's a comment underneath on the Facebook post for the sheriff's department it says uh, that the truck is a show vehicle and the lights were only ever used in the filming of a music video and not on any public road. So that's his defense on it. But it's you can look it up online. I mean, it's pretty funny. It's, and then they have like the news articles like this week in DeSoto County, a man was cited where with a vehicle with some risque language on it. <laughs> <laughs> out to you tom and tell us about it you know like that kind of uh, like local news story that's great so there's a picture of it there's some video of him at the gas station and it looks like a border patrol you vehicle. gotta do your first story of all it's in way. florida i know florida doesn't care too much about education in certain respects but i mean they have to know they're not on the border <laughs> right uh, like, right yeah. how far away is i mean <laughs> anyways but it's like this it's a it's a border patrol vehicle booty patrol booty patrol that's pretty funny so shout out to it doesn't say doesn't give this guy's name i'm sure i could have found done a little more work yeah i mean you know keep your eye out for him you never know what's going (laughs) on yeah you know i mean he's gonna have to come north they don't want him down there (laughs) right he's going up the whole booty patrol his dirty truck got a dirty truck. that's funny i got a pretty uh funny story too actually but mine's uh from uh way down south in brazil oh Wow, that's um, almost north, right? And there's a <clears throat> this uh, these guys were picking up traffic cones on the like in this construction on the road, and so they were picking them up. One of them was a little heavier than all of the others, Uh-oh. and they uh, come to find out there's a man inside of one of those traffic cones, you know, like the barrel size yeah. traffic cones, yeah. and he had wedged himself inside of this thing to get out of a rainstorm, and then couldn't get out of it. <laughs> so wow. let's see okay <clears throat> um despite the initial shock the road worker reassured the trap man i'll get you out try to pull your foot out the man was apparently so tightly wedged in that every effort to pull him free failed leading workers asking if they should call the fire service so there's all sorts of pictures finally one worker put the cone right way up hoisted it up and the trapped man slipped out onto the tarmac <laughs> Huh. Because so, he just kind of heimlich. So he's it. just trying to avoid the rain and tucked himself underneath one, yeah. which seems like a very dangerous idea. Yeah, that's uh, that's the funny part of the story. Because <laughs> I've been, Chris knows, but I've been driving to Winston-Salem and back to deliver my dad to doctor's appointments. Um, and in the past two trips down there, I've seen almost two catastrophic wrecks from people right. getting pushed off the side of the road by other vehicles and i'm like if there was a cone there and there's totally and a guy inside of that he's obliterated he's a goner yeah this guy i mean they may not have been picking him up that day like he could have been in there for a while you know it's like when you hear about like some guy that's breaking into a restaurant through like the chimney or something right like the, the air system and gets stuck <laughs> and you find him later on yeah and dead there was a guy that was like breaking into a house through a chimney and nobody knew about it i think they were out of town and he got stuck and he died and they didn't know that anything was wrong because they were out of town long enough that like even the smell was gone and they didn't know that anything till like the next year when they started a fire in the fireplace oh right and all of a sudden it was like this smells weird and they found that there was a guy that was upside down head first going in there so don't do that yeah don't do that you know find a, a 
awning. I mean, you know, don't break I'm, in, actually. But if or, you're going to. Or even if you're going to a cone, like, get the cone that's, <laughs> move it off the road at least. Yeah, stay in the rain. <clears throat> so, anyway. Yeah, I mean, that people one. People are, <clears throat> that does, one. you know, it goes to show that people are dumb everywhere. It Right? It's it's not just a U.S. problem. It's it's an us problem. <laughs> right. That's spelled U.S. Right, with, with one U, one S. Right. Uh, I just found that out. I was reading, and I found that out. <laughs> to, yeah. Um, speaking of dead people, <laughs> in Colorado, a funeral home is being accused of improper storage, and at least 189 are dead and decaying bodies were recovered from the Return to Nature Funeral Home, which, by the way, is a great name for a funeral That's, home. That's uh, something else. Um, this seems to happen a lot, though. Police first searched a funeral home located 30 miles south of Colorado Springs in a town of Penrose on October 3rd after receiving a report of strong odors, which, I mean, first of all, if you live next to a funeral home, like... I mean, I guess you would assume... There's a lot of traffic there, like, three times a week. I don't like it. You know, like, it smells weird. Yeah. Um, What they found inside of the building was horrific. Uh, The... uh, Fremont County Sheriff declined to go into further detail, though. Um, hmm. The website Return to Nature offers green natural burial services, so people aren't oh. being um, embalmed like in a traditional. They're being laid out to rot. Well, the base. I think this is like one of those places they put you. In. Yeah, that's it. They just lay you out <laughs> on the ground. <clears throat> this is one of those body farms that they for medical. No, this was like. I think they put you into like this sack type of thing and then use you as like a root a plant base and then your body decomposing helps like a tree to grow that kind of natural burial with no chemicals or whatever right but i mean this is legal in colorado but the law requires that bodies not that are not embalmed to be refrigerated within 24 hours of death and apparently they were not they're improperly stored 2,500 square foot building contained about 115 bodies. Um, after transporting all remains to the coroner's office, they've raised that number to 189 individuals. Wow. And the number could rise as the identification process continues. So I don't know if they're all just like mashed wow. together or what. I mean, they're all just uh, piled up, even? I don't I mean, know. Um, it's, huh. it's included, the, the effort to do all this has taken both sta- state and federal. Bureaus of Investigation, three county coroner's office, the state emergency management agency, and the state and local police agencies. Wow. So, I mean, everybody around this area is being... I assume those responsible have uh, are, are going to see their day or, or mm-hmm. have... Officials uh, say that it's unclear whether a crime has been committed. <laughs> no arrests or charges have been made in connection with the case. Uh, NPR, who this is on their, their effort to reach the owners of the funeral home, were not immediately successful. Yeah. I'm sure their phone's been ringing a bunch. Yeah. Um, huh. The the funeral home operators were being cooperative, according to the sheriff. Uh, the owners were evicted from one of their properties after failing to pay their taxes and were sued by a crematory that stopped doing business with them previously. Uh, mm. AP found that those issues did not appear to attract inspectors in a state with notoriously lax funeral home regulations. Weird. 
Huh. You know, to make sure that they've been. So these people the, are just getting by. Yeah. They're not yeah. breaking a law because right. they haven't even bothered to make laws on it, I guess, because it's just too much trouble. Yeah. Kind of like that guy in the uh, the football team, the the fake football team and or the fake high school. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. well, there's no law against it. So right. Like, yeah, amazing. <laughs> but, you know, right. you, you yeah. shoplift a TV and you get locked up for like three years. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh, we're just going to keep half Which, the again, town's dead people. You shouldn't people. shoplift TVs. But, right. right. But keeping yeah. half the town's dead people. <laughs> People in like in a cardboard box in the basement of your funeral yeah. home, and it's like since there's no law broken, then well, oh how do well. you even how do you even work like that? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't they notice the smell? Like yeah. you're like okay, this we got to do something. Well, that's one of those things. It's like I don't think you need a law to tell you that it's wrong. Something wrong is obviously going on here. I mean, it may not be like malicious, right? You know, but yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that they had any sort of you yeah. know. Right, malcontent is that the right yeah, word? They just yeah. sound like they're not very good at doing the work that needs to be or done, or they're just taking in too many. <laughs> that too. I mean, even if yeah. you and I are really good at it, I mean, how many <laughs> dead people can we deal with in a week? You know, like <laughs> beats you know, me. If you get if you're used to doing twenty, and all of a sudden you're putting fifty in there, well, you better hire somebody right. or like stop taking all of them. Yeah, yeah, you got every town has a couple of funeral homes. Maybe basically. a new business model. Yeah, some towns have you know five funeral homes like send one to the, the next town over if you have to but right. sorry we can't take we're full yeah you know wow well yeah um i guess uh on the death and destruction track i got uh the, my next story okay which uh does involve um, a, a dead animal so for anybody out there hmm. heads up the uh, headline reads first picture of pregnant woman who was hit by rottweiler that fell from balcony Oh, so this article geez. was an update to a previous article where there's now pictures. Oh wow! Which you don't, I, I haven't, yeah. But um, so yeah, this uh, 27 year old pregnant woman was in the hospital after she was hit by a dog that fell from a third floor balcony. Uh, she's 27, remains in hospital after the bizarre accident happened on the busy street in Rome. The eight month old puppy Cody died immediately after falling 10 meters in an accident that left many passers by in tears. So uh, <laughs> everybody's like sad for the dog, right. and there's like a pregnant lady knocked out on the ground. <clears throat> and uh, let's see, many in the area thought a gun had gone off when the pup struck the concrete oh. below. Ludovica's mother was with her. Ludovica's the girl that got hit by the dog was with her and said, "Initially, I thought we had been caught in a shootout. There was a huge bang, and then out of the corner of my eye, I saw something hit the pavement." <clears throat> Um, sorry, this article keeps a... Wow. After a second or so, I realized it was a dog, and it had hit my daughter. The dog just missed me because I was a few paces ahead. I then heard people screaming, and I looked at my daughter, and she was covered in blood. Ludovica's mother said her son-in-law, who was a doctor, rushed to the area to help. She continued, It's absurd that a person can be walking through the center of Rome, and something like this happens, but now the dog is dead. I don't know what will happen. Let me just say that that was absurd in no matter what town you're in. Yeah, yeah, no matter where you are. It doesn't have to be in Rome. I mean, it somehow does. I guess it'd be be really crazy if it happened, like, if you're just out in a field and a dog fell on you. It would definitely be strange. I'm not saying it's a common occurrence. Obviously not. But if you're walking anywhere, it's going to happen somewhere with buildings. (laughs) And more than likely, it's going to be what they call cities or towns, (laughs) you know? Yeah. But um, the owner... The owner said uh, she was in the bathroom and uh, Cody was next to her and then he wasn't and she heard a really loud bang and people shouting. So uh, the lady on the on the floor 
in, that owns the shop down below called her and said to come down as Cody had fallen out of the window and hit someone. Huh. Um, yeah, so she's still, like, she doesn't know That's, I wonder where, I guess the dog there. was just like, you know, like in the movies, they throw a ball out the window and the dog goes flying yeah, out the like window. something got know? its attention. Um, huh. Yeah. A pregnant lady. Yeah. Or chasing a bee or something. Might have know? been, but, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, hopefully she's okay and, like, you know. But, yeah, that's what the story was saying. She's going to she's gonna be just fine. They, she, All right. <laughs> she's still I mean, in the hospital. Know, sorry but, to hear about your dog, but, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're on the third floor. Keep your door shut so the dog won't jump out the window. Like, then who would even think you'd have to say that to somebody? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that one was crazy. I saw that uh, when I was researching my story. That was one of those headlines that pops up in the middle of the story you're trying to read. <laughs> I, oh, well, like, I mean, at least wait, that was hold something. hold on a second. I'm like, what, what is it? this? What, what page is that on, though? Is like on this the... is from metro.co.uk. Oh, okay. Well, then it's got the .uk, so it should be, <laughs> should be legit. Right. Actually, mine's from the UK here. This one's a little bit less like, you know, there's no dogs getting killed in this yeah yeah sorry for the dead dog but um, the story was interesting this is enough. from wales a charity run thrift store in wales is asking supporters to stop donating their used and unused <laughs> sex toys <laughs> it's called the bernardo's store um it supports bernardo's children charity children's charity interesting and they're asking donors to be careful of what they bring to the store could you could those of you who kindly donate please be mindful that we're a children's charity and such and as such we have a range of ages on our wonderful volunteer team we therefore ask that you refrain from donating your used and unused marital aids marital aids Uh, we would like to remind you that the branch has cctv so that these items can be traced back to their owners thank you (laughs) i don't know if they were doing it on purpose or it doesn't really say how often the representative for the charity store said uh, the statement came after some recent inappropriate donations. So it, was, it could have just been one bag of something that got <laughs> got donated. The headline says thrift store asks people to stop donating used and unused sex toys. But that doesn't is every right. third delivery got dildos in it, or <laughs> you know it had you know, to like, have been enough, or maybe there was like just a whole bag of them, or something. just a an industrial sized bag yeah. of cock rings. I was just imagining <laughs> a duffel bag full of them, but no, like like those barrels that those guys in Australia used to keep people in, just full of cock rings. <laughs> God, <sighs> wow! Yeah. So you know, if you're going to donate, that's great. Donate, yeah, yeah donate, but also check it again double check right you know i mean they can't even take a couch torn up by a cat <laughs> right <But> they can <laughs> you know and i also like if you've got used ones nobody wants that <laughs> yeah. if you're getting rid of it there's a place called the trash can right yeah you know like I mean, don't give it to your girl you know don't <laughs> don't give it to your new girlfriend yeah yeah just right here here homie have this here homie anyway so homie so yeah i mean that's a good all right that's a good swath of some news yeah should we um segue into hey i just found this out that's good do you like that delivery that was great it's like you meant it but you got it right so that's what matters most i did i even peeked over at my cheat and i can't even see so right. look at that getting it right we're learning yeah. we're all here together so um as i'd already mentioned to you i do kind of have a little twofer because one of them involves the theme of our 
stories this week, which is Massachusetts, only because right. I found it while looking for stories about Massachusetts. But um, then then I'll do the other one, which involves something apparently we talked about before, but I did not remember at all. And a listener, let me know about it. All right. Go for it. First one is Dighton Rock, which does exist in the Bridgewater Triangle, which you did a story about last season. Right. And it's uh, you didn't talk about it but it's a 40 ton boulder um located in the riverbed of the taunton river in berkeley massachusetts it's noted for its petroglyphs um carved designs of ancient and uncertain origin and the controversy about their creators in 1963 during construction of a coffer dam state officials removed the rock from the river for preservation um so now it's in a museum in what is called dighton rock state park so yeah, but it has all of these uh, sort of mysterious engravings and carvings all over it and uh, things that people don't understand. And so there's all this history and mythology surrounding this rock. When I say all this, there's not a whole lot to the story. How big is this rock again? 40 tons. Um, has right. the form of a slanted six-sided block, approximately five feet high, nine and a half feet wide, and 11 feet long. So pretty big. Well, how's that been, How big is that in meters? Uh, 1.5 meters high, oh. 2.9 meters wide, and 3.4 meters oh. long. I was trying to get you. I was, <laughs> you it, it had it in the article. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's uh, uh, I was hoping to get you. <laughs> I know you were. Get some hate emails. I'm glad I was there for it. It is gray-brown crystalline sandstone of medium to coarse textures. The surface with the inscriptions has a trapezoidal face <laughs> and is inclined 70 degrees. De- 70 degrees to the northwest um it was found facing the water of the bay so yeah i'm not hmm. going to talk too much more about it but uh it's a uh, known it was discovered or the first i guess known drawings of it were from 1680 the english colonist uh, john danforth and that drawing is in the british museum now Uh, um, In 1690, Cotton Mather uh, had uh, written something about it in his wonderful works of God commemorated. Cotton Gather? Cotton Mather. Oh. You could could see his name involved with the Salem Witch Trials. Oh. Yeah. Was he one of the good guys or one of the bad guys? I guess she'd call him one of the bad guys, probably. Just burning everybody? uh, Yeah, I think he was involved with the Salem Witch Trials. Hmm. But, you know, they were all cotton something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. It just reminds me of Jason Bateman's character in uh, Dodgeball. He's talking about the other guy who's the main announcer is named Cotton. No. And he's just like Jason Bateman's all kind of like spaced out. I don't guy. remember that. I mean, I he's like, that's movie. a good point, Cotton. Like, just <laughs> back to you, Cotton. Jason yeah. Bateman. Too. It's like a stoner guy. Yeah. <laughs> he could say anything. Oh, it's great. Anyways. But, uh, Sorry. No, you know, you're all right. Uh, during the 19th you, century, Cotton. many popular publications, public figures mentioned The Rock. <clears throat> the poet and critic James Russell Lowell suggested that presidential candidates' letters to newspapers should be written in its undeciphered script. It was uh, part of a satirical article he was writing. Um, he made other references to The Rock in his widely circulated satirical writing and may thus have helped to popularize it. And so there's a uh, different theories on where the engravings came from from uh you know indigenous uh people from north america ancient phoenicians the norse the portuguese the chinese there's all sorts of different aliens uh, uh there are actually no alien theories on this mm. one 
Yeah. Although I'm sure you probably could find there's an episode somebody. of Ancient Aliens or something. People talking right, about it. Right, that one crazy guy. Yeah. I mean, considering I don't know what the question is, but the answer is alien. Considering no one knows what the markings mean, they're yeah, fair enough uh, theory because none of them really are. You know, it's like all right, maybe. All right. I would say it's probably more likely, you know, Native Americans, people indigenous to North America, but who knows. I know very little. <laughs> All right. As, as we found out over like right. many, many episodes, that neither one, one of us really know much. I mean, but that's the Occam's razor solution. It's like, well, that seems like the most likely scenario. Yeah, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm open People to People had nothing but time then. That was, that was basically ancient Instagram. It's like ancient you have to Instagram. carve into like right. rocks. Yeah, but there are definitely pictures of it if you look it up. Um, the Dighton Rock, D-I-G-H-T-O-N. Um, and then the other thing, uh, a few episodes ago, we were talking about, uh, Friday the 13th. It was, yeah, it was our, uh, yeah, the, uh, movies based on true stories, but we were talking about Friday the 13th and you had mentioned, um, the 13th law being miss missing from the code of Hammurabi. <laughs> right. Which I, I really remembered. <laughs> right. I was I totally, as soon as Chris said that, it's like, oh, I remember all 12 yeah. of the others. Yeah, I mean, you did end up remembering it a little better than I did because right. uh, our veterinarian friend reached out to me and and uh, mentioned it. And I said, I have no clue what you're talking about, basically, when I responded. And so he reminded me of you talking about it. But, well, he, uh, was, he, was, uh, he was on his honeymoon. And uh, yeah, listening to us, and he he probably was in trouble and like having to like he was listening to us and then decided to go on like a who knows probably already in trouble. So yeah, glad we could join you on your honeymoon, buddy. Um, but uh, the Code of Hammurabi is a Babylonian legal text composed during 1755 to 1750 BC. So it's a uh, it's old stuff, but it does in fact have a thirteenth law, um, which I think was the point of our conversation was that maybe it didn't. And that's, but you had said perhaps it was due to a clerical error, which I found because uh, I went back and listened. Or no, I didn't. Caleb, or <laughs> Caleb, he told me about this, and I was like, "Huh, I don't even remember I was talking about it." But he was like, "Yeah, Zach said it might be due to a clerical error." And I'm like, well, "Maybe it was my clerical error." <laughs> I do vaguely recall you saying something about a clerical error, and I was laughing about it. <laughs> like, it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, but, you know, they left the number 13 out on purpose. But the uh, 13th law of the Code of Hammurabi is if a man has not his witnesses at hand, the judge shall set, shall, <laughs> shall set him a fixed time not exceeding six months. And if within six months he has not produced his witnesses, the man has lied. He shall bear the penalty of his suit. Hmm. Okay. So, so yeah. There you go. So you had six months to prove <clears throat> that you weren't lying, basically? Yeah, you six months to present the witnesses proving you weren't lying. Huh. And uh, if you couldn't and We're looking it. at, what, three years right now? Yep. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, yeah. Well, sorry for my clerical error, and thanks for finding That's it. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, uh, thanks for and listening I, so closely. And, and we're glad that you took us on your honeymoon. <laughs> and uh, if you have any extra gifts... That you got doubles of for right. your wedding, we'll gladly take well, them. I Chris think and I will we're share. Completely making up the fact that maybe he took us on his honeymoon too. So. Oh no, I think that's. I bet he played it on the airplane and made everybody listen. It was on the plane. <laughs> it's one of those guys. Oh, Had Lord. his earbuds up 
too loud for anybody and they don't have to hear us yeah thanks we appreciate it <laughs> you're you're getting better looking I, I admit so yeah yeah anyways uh i so my oh wait handsome young hey, married man i just found this out <laughs> Ooh, that sounded um, believable i did <laughs> well the, sort of because i kind of knew about part of this but one not teresa sent us a a uh message good to that, hear from that, you again that she had just uh found out that the bottom drawer on ovens is not just for storage it's actually a warming drawer yeah well i mean i kind of knew that but i mean we all know what most of it's for but there's actually three different things it could be for depending on your oven i just did literally find this out Um, i was gonna say i just learned this in the past six months so a warming drawer is super easy to identify right you took a take a look at the buttons on your oven and if one of them is labeled warming drawer and that's exactly what you have. So anytime you need to warm a pie or a loaf of bread, you just want to keep dishes warm while the rest of the meal finishes cooking, pop it in the warming drawer and push the warming button. So it keeps it, it's just radiating heat off the bottom of the, right. cause that's, that's that drawer at the bottom that you're keeping your pizza pans in <laughs> exactly. you know? or extra sheets. towels or <laughs> whatever else you got in there, your bongs, you know, your, your uh toy your thrift store donations whatever you got a weird place to keep your bong i think but hey you (laughs) keep it warm more power to you keep it um so there's another thing it could be for depending on the brand uh it could be a broiler and we all know what broilers do on ovens right well um and also there are ones that it's there's if there's not a warming button and there's not a uh, broiler button that for that particular drawer then you have yourself a storage drawer (laughs) um which do actually exist under uh ovens right as well. um yeah. they said that uh <clears throat> that's a good place to keep uh cast iron pots and pans because the warmth will help to keep them rust free oh. don't keep your plastic items in there this article saying that but also like use your common sense right yeah um meltables some older ovens have little insulation and may heat your metal cookware when the oven is on so as a precaution, always use oven mitts to remove cookware during or after your oven has been on. Most definitely. And I was telling Chris that because I use my oven as like a cabinet for the <laughs> stuff that you use in the oven. So sometimes you turn on the oven to preheat and you're like, oh, shit. You you open it up and you right. realize that all your pots, or not your pots, but your... You've been baking everything you, in the Your oven. baking pans are all in there nice and hot. So sometimes just don't put plastic smoky. in. There you go. Get some seasoning in there. So, yeah. So we just found that out. Yeah. Yeah. So. Good job. I'm glad you did that one because, uh, yeah, I recently learned that about the uh, the warming drawer as well. Yeah. I mean, I knew from a long time ago that it was like that, but also, like, nobody uses it like that. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I've seen the ones with the broiler, actually. I, I know what that is. but yeah. yeah, but most ovens now just have a broiler feature it's in the oven yeah, exactly it you know, turns off one and turns on the other but yeah so you know now that the holidays are coming you're gonna have some family over now you can like look like you know what you're doing you can be your own julia child <laughs> and like you know family comes over for thanksgiving and you got your turkey you pull out and you're like oh where's the green bean casserole oh it's right here warm the warming drawer oh, the pumpkin pie down in here yeah both of them down there just all of the things mm-hmm. down there you know just stack just them up. Staying warm. Yep. There you go. Keep so, your feet down there. My feet get cold. 
<laughs> That's where Chris yep. keeps his feet when yep. he's watching TV. <clears throat> warming drawer. Keeps him in the warming drawer. <laughs> uh, great. So now we're off to Massachusetts. <laughs> we'll just change <laughs> off of that completely. Good segue. <laughs> totally. <laughs> With warm slippers. That's right. And um, I'm going to head to the uh, the Berkshires. Berkshires. I bet you that's how it's pronounced. Might be. Spelled Berkshires. Okay. And um, <clears throat> it's uh, actually Berkshire County, Massachusetts. And um, there's a few different stories I'm going to tell about this specific night. September 1st, 1969. Um <clears throat> But first, I'll tell you a little bit about Berkshire County. Since we're doing Massachusetts, tell you where it is. It's um, western edge of Massachusetts, so away from the water, for those paying attention. The Berkshires is a region of rural highlands in western Massachusetts. It's uh, very near, when I was doing research, a place called Ski Butter. Yeah, it was called Ski Butternut. It's uh, like a ski resort. Huh. Ski Butternut how they name these places. It encompasses large <clears throat> swaths of wilderness, making it a popular tourist destination for hikers and nature lovers during the summer. The Berkshires are also made up of mostly small towns. And so, I'm going to start with the story um, of Tom Reed and uh, what happens to Mr. Reed on this night in September 1969. I think, if I remember right, it uh, turns out that that was also Labor Day. Um, okay. <clears throat> but Tom Reed was born in... Uh, in Queens, New York, but later moved with his family to Berkshire County. And in 1969, his mother had acquired a restaurant in uh, Sheffield, a town in Berkshire County called the Village Green. It was a place where many locals gathered. And um, at the time, she was a single mother trying to give her sons a good life. So she'd moved to the country to, you know, try to give them the fun country filled. <laughs> right. Yeah. Get yeah. them out of the city. <clears throat> on uh, September 1st, Tom Reed was riding in a horse show, and after uh, being almost injured in a riding accident, his mom decided that they were done for the day. So he and his grandma and his brother and his mom got in the car. Uh, they went to close their diner, and they left there around 8.30 and took a shortcut home through the Sheffield Bridge. Um, in the car with Nancy and Tom, well, I already said that, were his mother and younger brother. When her mother turned around to speak to the children, she noticed a bright light rising from the banks of the Housatonic River. You see where I'm going with this? As they exited the bridge, they all saw a light spear hovering about two stories high. As it rose, Tom saw it fire rods of light. Matthew looked to the right and saw a second orange sphere. As they slowly drove along, they noticed that everything became quiet. They felt a pressure change as if they were underwater, and then the white sphere disappeared. Then Nancy noticed a disc-shaped object hovering in the sky. She said it looked like a turtle shell. Tom said that it looked about 100 yards long. So I'm like, hmm, big long turtle shell. But also maybe it looked like a cigar shape. Who knows? Suddenly, the inside of the car lit up. It appeared as if it was daylight inside, and after being silent for several minutes, the outside noises returned. <clears throat> that was the last thing they remembered from the car. Three hours later, the Reeds found themselves still in the car, but to them it had felt as if only 15 minutes had passed from the beginning of their experience. They had fragmented memory of the lost time. The car was now off, and Nancy and her mother Marion were now in opposite seats. Um, so Marion started the car, and they drove back to town to get help, because they had no idea what had just happened to them. <clears throat> Goodness, excuse me. So, this begins what was uh, the Berkshire UFO incident. Um. <laughs> uh, why would Chris have not gone to the UFOs? I tried and tried I this I think week. Chris is an alien. I really <clears throat> got my throat all 
clogged up here. I really tried and tried this week not to do this story, but I kept coming back to it. That's all right. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's a pretty interesting one, and it kind of falls in with my whole Travis Walton thing where there's multiple stories with very similar stories, and like there are witnesses and stuff that saw things and saw people right. being abducted. Or, Travis or Walton whatever. wasn't from Massachusetts. No, he was in, uh, they were in Arizona. Oh, okay. But, yeah, but a similar, you know, there were people that said they saw something happen. Right, and yeah. So... Like when you have witnesses, kind of like our 13th code <laughs> or 13th law. That's right. kind of funny how that fell in there. But <clears throat> so there's actually witnesses. But anyway, um, goodness, let me get to my, my notes got all screwed up here. Of course, I've been screwing them up every week. Um, on the evening of September 1st, 1969, an unexplained phenomenon occurred in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. Multiple witnesses reported seeing strange lights and experiencing other strange occurrences. Some witnesses reported being abducted and taken aboard a strange craft before being released. Others reported experiencing a phenomenon known as missing time. Um, according to witness accounts, the UFO in question was a disc-shaped craft that performed acrobatic maneuvers in the sky above the Berkshires. It's unclear exactly how long the phenomenon lasted. So, yeah, but people were reporting it throughout the night, I guess. I'm going to move on to the next story, and things will start to, you know, this whole night kind of freak the whole town out. Right, yeah. Um, Let's see. According to Thomas Reed, though, I'm going to go back to Thomas Reed for a sec. This isn't the first time he had reported seeing UFOs, so red flags. (laughs) <laughs> at least in my opinion this was 69 you said yeah this was 69 this oh, dude was tripping balls all the time <laughs> well he was uh i mean he was 12 i think so <laughs> that doesn't mean he wasn't tripping balls <laughs> or nine actually because i'm getting ready to say <laughs> oh, that <okay. laughs> so um he saw the ufo when he was nine years old on september 1st 1969 while he was in the car with his mother grandmother and brother um wait I'm sorry. I was in the wrong place. Never mind. He does have other sightings. I'll tell you about them in a little bit. I'm getting all All mixed up in my notes. Oh, goodness. Hey, guess what? Chris does this every week. Chris does this every week. Yeah, if you listen every week. You get to uh, you get to hear me do this. Hey, even more I just often. did this again. <laughs> That's this, this week's segment. Yeah, this is the hey, first. I just did this again. First edition of our new segment. So this is going to kind of uh, overlap a little bit, but this is going to tell you more. Uh, Thomas Reed has become uh, kind of popular for this, uh, for talking about this abduction when he was nine years old. So now he's an adult and he's still talking about it. (laughs) Right. And he's all over the place. But his story, you know, remains kind of believable for a lot of people because it's like, well, you know, it's got all of these hallmarks of maybe being some something happened. You know, like, he doesn't actually necessarily believe it's aliens. He doesn't want to call it an abduction or anything. Like, the way he talks about it is, you know, he's still not really sure what it was. Okay. He'll go along with the alien thing, but, you know, he feels like that that takes away from really figuring out what happened. <laughs> okay. So, gotcha. yeah, yeah, he doesn't necessarily believe that's true. Um, <clears throat> so they're heading home from their restaurant village um, called Village on the Green, and he was busy giving his brother a little fireball candy. Suddenly, they noticed a mass of glowing lights peeking out from behind the lush trees on the empty road. They continued to spill out from behind the trees as the family crossed the covered bridge, but they didn't know what to make of the sight. We all looked at it because it was kind of a self-contained glow, Thomas Reed said. It rose up a little bit it looked like it followed the dirt road which i'm sure it probably didn't but it appeared that way because we could see it through the trees the light started to to bleed through once we broke into a little bit of a clearing we could see inside the car so the light was flooding inside the car 
After an amber glow emerged on both sides of the road, Reed recalled being taken to a hangar-like area that was bigger than a football field. We encountered something, Reed said. It was definitely not of this world. So, hmm. <laughs> we had a black and white television at the time, and the imagery that we saw in this thing was unbelievable. These were lights that looked like fluorescent tubing inside this hangar. I'm thinking what he's saying is we thought the TV was amazing, but this was something even more amazing than that, I think right. is what he's trying oh, yeah. to say there. This hallway we had seen was circular with a Y configuration almost to control the flow of traffic. This one room had a bowed-in wall that was rounded. This was not something that you would have seen in 1969 anywhere else. I have no idea where I was, but I know that what I saw was very different than anything I've seen even today, 50 years later. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> this was a story on, uh, you know, when uh, Unsolved Mysteries came back, it came on Netflix. This is a story I saw in the first season of uh, okay. that on uh, Netflix. I think it's episode five, maybe. All right. <clears throat> but before that episode had come out, this story, I think it was known in like UFO circles, but it was, wasn't a very well-known UFO story. So everything I looked up was basically about the Unsolved Mysteries episode. There's a few other things out there. So most of this comes from what happened in the in the Unsolved Mysteries episode okay. and some other interviews. Thomas Reed is the most outspoken of all of the people that I'm going to talk about tonight because there are others that reported things happening too. Most of them kids. Gotcha. Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, Thomas Reed says, everything got really calm. It was like being in the middle of a hurricane. There was like a barometric change in pressure. It was just like a dead silence. Then there was an eruption of crickets and frogs, and it got really loud, and that was it, Reed said, adding that it was all quite confusing. And so we'll leave Thomas Reed there. Staying in the same night, we're going to go to Jane Green. Um, she had lived in the Great Barrington area, which is a, a town a little bit north of Sheffield, since she was 12. Her family was prominent because they owned the oldest Rexall pharmacy in the Northeast. At around dusk on September 1st, 1969, Jane was driving with her girlfriend, Mary DeGrace, from Stockbridge, Ma Massachusetts, to Great Barrington. While driving down the road, they saw several bright lights ahead of them. At first, Jane thought there had been an accident and that the lights were from police cars. As she got closer, she realized that she could not drive anymore because the lights were so bright. She decided to pull to the side of the road. The car in front of them did the same. Jane and Mary got out of the car to get a better look, and they saw a huge object floating over the road in front of them. It was so large that Jane could not see the end of it from the right or the left. She could not tell what color it was, but she recalled that it was tall and immense. She did not see any windows on it and did not hear any noise coming from it. Within a few seconds, the object lifted up, went to the left, lifted up again, and then went over the mountains. Hmm. And uh, her interview in, <clears throat> in that Unsolved Mysteries episode probably the most compelling in my opinion because i mean she's an older lady at this point like telling the story she's an old lady now but how old was she then like 16 she was, or 17 uh, or something it, i don't think it actually even says she was a, probably but, a teenager she was, yeah, she was, she was driving younger. yeah exactly teenager yeah. early 20s you know? right like i think it was like early so 20s. more i guess people would feel more credible than a nine-year-old right like i saw lights on well, her yeah. interviews too she was like you know at the time like I, I was definitely a non-believer in such things because, you know, right. there had been other reports in the news and stuff. Right. And she was, okay. like, definitely, like, somebody that was a Because, like, a nine-year-old, what, two months after the moon landing is going to have some, like, 
literally right. like a month and a half from the moon landing. Well, that's part of the Might whole theories some, of what oh, you know. we like activated them because we were up there kind <laughs> right. of thing. Well, that's funny because some people were saying, "Oh, maybe it was punishment for going to the moon," and it's like, eh, I mean, <laughs> wow, what a punishment! <laughs> Boo, right. you know, like yeah, that one I did. We can quite travel get. through space <laughs> and time, but we're gonna come here and just go, ooh, yeah. and then like come here and scare gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, huh. I um, yeah, I. I I, I don't not believe these people because they are all believable when they're telling. I mean, I think there's probably an explanation that isn't aliens. But it's still quite right. mysterious and scary, maybe, but like maybe not aliens. Like, <laughs> who knows what the well, hell Well, some it places is, they say swamp gas. In Massachusetts is right. the uh, baked bean state, so maybe it's just gas. But this whole swamp <laughs> gas thing, I'm like, does the swamp gas look like an object, though? Or is it just lights? Ooh. Like, right. You know, I mean, you could tell me it's a weather balloon. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, but next, we won't tell you it's a weather balloon. We'll tell you about Tom Warner who was also a kid at the time. His family lived in the same house in Great Barrington for six generations. He was the youngest of seven children, and he was 10 in 1969. Um, around the same time as the other stories that night, Tom was at his neighbor Jane Shaw's house coloring. He liked to go over and uh, and color over there. He's uh, turned into an artist in his adult life. <laughs> a colorer. <clears throat> he was a colorer. As it got dark out, he went over and looked out of a window, and he heard a voice say, You need to go home now. Fearful, he immediately ran out of the house and across the front yard. Jane came outside and watched him run in place for about five minutes. She says he was just stuck in one place, running in place. Like a glitch on a video game. <laughs> Almost, <laughs> yeah, the way she described it anyway, yeah. When she realized that... uh. When she realized that he was not moving, she knew that something was wrong. Tom then turned to his left and saw a UFO drop out of the sky. A beam from the craft came onto him. As the light shone on him, his hands jerked back behind him. Jane saw the light around him and then realized that he had disappeared. Tom remembered at the same time being laid down on his back at the other end of the Shaw family property. A beam was still surrounding him. His brother was behind him and yelled for him to run. However, he told him that he could not run because the beam was holding him down. The voice came again and said, I'll be done in a minute. Within a minute, the light beam went off and he was able to get up. He turned around and watched the light disappear. Jane Shaw recalled that seven minutes had passed between the time that he was picked up and returned. Hmm. So, yeah, like, she's seeing it happen. <laughs> but he, she... He has very little memory. He was it, running in place and then he went away? He was running in place and then... It, from his account, he's kind of looking to the side. Oh, sorry, I keep moving away from the microphone. He kind of looks to the side and sees this craft, and at the same okay. time, a light comes down on him. Right, and then he gets pulled yeah, up. And, gets, she, and she sees him get pulled up. She sees him disappear. Oh, okay. like She doesn't necessarily think he get pulled oh, okay. up or anything. Right. He just disappears in the light. He was just uh, running in place and then yeah, gone. bright light, and then he's gone in the light. Hmm. Um, okay. And then in his rendition like that happens and suddenly he's waking up in the field across the property and his yeah and his brother's like get up and he's like i can't the light's still on me and then the light you know the voice says you know i'll be done in a minute and mm -hmm. the light goes off and he's able okay. to get up. yeah they didn't have like an uncle visiting town or something <laughs> they're not not in the stories that i'm hearing anyway okay. all right, right. <laughs> just just wondering <clears throat> but we will tell one more. Like a handsy uncle. <laughs> handsy. <laughs> That's for another episode, I guess. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. actually so, my, my story's about today. It's a handsy uncle. A handsy uncle. His name's actually Hansy Uncle. <laughs> right. He's from Boston. <laughs> um, 
we're going to talk about Melanie Kirchdorfer. She was also um, around the same age as the others at that time. She had lived in Berkshire County since 1957. She was 12 at the time in 1969. Melanie and her family had gone to the local Dairy Queen. <laughs> I'm stumbling. That's all Dairy right. Queen to get ice cream. Uh, when they parked to eat the ice cream um, at Lake Mansfield, about two miles away from Tom and Jane Shaw's home, that was from the last story, as her family backed into the parking lot, a brilliant, bright aura came around their car. Everyone in the car began to panic. Her father decided to chase the light, which had started moving, despite the fact that Melanie was begging him not to. He's like, 12-year-olds, I don't listen to 12-year-olds. Oh, especially 1969 <laughs> dad. <laughs> right. Massachusetts dad, yeah. She and her sister began to shake in fear her sister did not remember anything after that and uh however uh, melanie remembers levitating and then being on a ship she remembers being laid out while in it she recalled being in a room with several other children suddenly the other children began to disappear one by one after that she woke up at the lake by herself and had to walk home the weird thing about her story is that she's in her parents' car, and there's never any sort of accounts from her parents or anything about her disappearing or going missing or even her sister saying anything. Okay, like I got so you, it's, yeah. uh, it's all weird that she would have disappeared and woke up in the field and walked home, and she's the right. only one ever telling this story. Right, yeah, that's so, odd. You know me, I'm a believer, but especially her... Well, maybe they're covering up for that handsy uncle. <laughs> right, like her account to me is maybe the least believable because i'm like well hers is the most maybe imaginable because it's just lights or no i'm sorry she gets abducted too i was gonna say it's just lights but no that's jane gray but yeah like hers i'm like i don't know maybe she saw the story and later on said hey yeah i got abducted too and whatever no one else is corroborating her story (laughs) whereas in these other stories tonight they have corroboration from other people yeah that's well, maybe their minds, their minds got wiped out <clears throat> differently or something. Maybe, yeah. I mean, and that was, uh, I was listening to this pretty fun podcast. Uh, they, uh, these two ladies, I can't remember the name of the podcast right now, but they were talking about this, and uh, one of their theories was uh, that the government, you know, had been, we, we know now that they were doing all sorts of human testing on, like, memory and doing LSD tests and stuff, yeah. and uh, she had come across some stuff that, some of this testing was going on nearby Sheffield, uh, Massachusetts, and that perhaps... There's a lot of universities in Massachusetts, right, too. Like so perhaps like, this was actually some sort of testing event. and Could have been. You know, yeah. and that these... Because they were practicing with, like, aerosol LSD and stuff, and so it's like perhaps people did see ships, and you know, but they were also, right. you know... Tripping yeah. out of their gourd. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, right. they, so yeah, they did see. Well, something. that was my guess on the like, first guy, but right. he was only nine. So. Yeah, you did say that. So I, you know, that Maybe was putting in the drinking water. Who knows? <laughs> it's funny because the girl in that podcast mentioned that too. All she right. kept saying maybe it was something in the drinking water too. You know, because they're doing mm-hmm. all sorts of experiments at that time, like and probably still. Let's be honest. But yeah, well, you go to big cities and there's like drugs <clears> in the water, right? I mean. You're gonna find that's yeah. how they that's how they keep track of how much drug usage is going on. Sometimes is like the the remnants that are in the water. <laughs> sure, <like> right. <clears throat> but um, to add to Melanie's story, um, Tom Warner, going back to him, he's the kid that was picked up in the yard after coloring. Um, he remembers seeing Melanie to the right of him when he's on the ship. 
He recalled seeing total fear on her face, um, though she doesn't remember seeing him. Melanie and Tom didn't know each other beforehand, but when they met to uh, do the filming for Unsolved Mysteries, they felt an immediate connection. Mm. Yeah. And now they're married. <laughs> they right. are not married. Okay. Sorry. Um, Fake news. <clears throat> so uh, Jane Green, she was uh, the story I told right after Tom Reed. She was the one with her girlfriend that saw the lights and, uh, you know, they didn't get abducted or anything. They just saw the giant ship and the lights. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. She, uh, like I said, said that she was a non-believer of UFOs and flying saucers until that night. She recalled that after seeing the craft, she drove into Great Barrington and pulled over in front of the family store on Main Street. She and her friend Mary were in disbelief as to what had happened. She went inside the store and told her husband about their experience. He told her to report it to the radio station. She went there and met with Tom Jay, the director of WSBS Radio. However... WSBS. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking. <laughs> However, he did not believe her. A few hours later, he became inundated with calls from other people with similar sightings. Tom Jay heard the calls coming in over his ham radio. He heard so many calls that he actually called the police department to see if they were hearing about it as well. He then got on the air and asked for listeners to call him and report where they had seen the UFOs. He received reports in Pittsfield, Stockbridge, Lenox, Agermont, and Sheffield, Massachusetts. He also received reports from nearby Canaan, Connecticut. The calls were coming in from groups of people that in many cases had never met each other before. It is believed that these radio reports have since been erased. The Great Barrington Police Department did not have any records of these reports as the most significant sighting was in the town of Sheffield. Sheffield had no reports of them either. Night police reports, anyway. Uh, Sheffield resident Eddie Gulata recalled that shortly after the sightings, people told his father, the chief of police, about the flying objects they had seen. The wit or object, rather. The witness said that the object <clears throat> object was landing and taking off in fields near Sheffield. His father did not believe the sightings were genuine. However, Eddie and his friends began going out at night, hoping to see the objects. They never saw anything. Jane Green was relieved to learn that others had seen the UFOs because she was certain that no one would believe her. The recent stories, uh, more the more recent stories about U.S. Navy pilots seeing UFOs uh, that we've heard about recently uh, made her feel more comfortable about coming out and saying something about her story. So the Unsolved Mysteries is the first <clears throat> time she'd ever okay, yeah, like come out and said. So she th- about feels it. like people are going to think she's either crazy or right, yeah, or. She, Something nefarious might happen because she comes out and says one or the yeah. other. Yeah. But uh, when Jane Green was contacted by Unsolved Mysteries about the sightings, she learned from her sons that they had experienced similar sightings at the same time, that, but they had never talked to them or never talked to each other about them. Hmm. Um, Tom Warner recalled discussing his experience with his friends at the time. He's the one that got picked up in the yard after coloring. However, after a while, he decided to stop telling people about it because everyone thought he was crazy. People often avoided him in high school because of what had happened. Eventually, he decided to paint his experience as a form of therapy, and he still paints and sells those paintings. Yeah, yeah, that's what he does for a living. That seemed like a nice enough guy in the Unsolved Mysteries episode. Melanie, uh, Melanie... Recall that her sister always believed her, so uh, I said that her sister never corroborated it. I was wrong, so my bad on that. <laughs> she also told her boyfriend at the time about it, and he always believed her as well. So wrong again, Caldwell. At the time, they were the only ones that knew about it. But really, where were your parents, and what did they think? I included that in there. <laughs> it's like, do your parents know where you are? <laughs> Covering man, that <laughs> uncle. Melanie noted that she had no reason to make up her story because it was not a fun or positive experience for her. 
When Tom Reed went to school, he would talk about his experience often. However, this led to fights with other students about it. His mom, Nancy, on the other hand, didn't tell anybody about it at the diner. Tom remembered that many people in town treated them differently due, the, due to their experience. Nancy remembered that people tailgated her as she drove home. One driver actually followed her up the driveway. Disturbingly, one man jumped up on a table and exposed himself to Tom and Nancy, saying, Well, if you want to see something out of this world, Nancy, I'll show you something out of this world. <laughs> Overall, the experience was very hard on her. Eventually, she decided to sell the diner and the house and move away oh <laughs> man i just think of like the, the stupidity of the guy that's like look at my dick yeah, no, i'll right. show you something you want to see something crazy it's good to see that there's rednecks even in massachusetts <laughs> right so um there uh were some things out there that weren't part of the unsolved mysteries episode um and uh they uh, neglected to mention that uh Berkshire County area has an extensive uh, documented history of UFO sightings beyond that night of September 1st, 1969. While that Labor Day weekend is the largest collective of shared UFO experiences in the county's history, there have been reports of alien encounters both before and after that night. Um, I was still having trouble of finding a lot of those accounts, though. <laughs> so I didn't find a lot of those accounts. Uh, Thomas Reed claimed that he and his younger brother Matthew were first taken on board an alien spacecraft. Uh, I was saying earlier how they had reported they had been abducted before. This is the them reporting their previous experiences, okay, Thomas gotcha. Reed and his brother. Thomas Reed claimed that he and his younger brother, Matthew, were taken um, on board an alien spacecraft in 1966. They were also taken and released again in 1967 before the being taken and released along with their mother and grandmother on the night in September 1st, 1969. Right. Huh. Um, this is how the story goes, and this is from a Boston Globe article. Um, where there were some uh, little interviews with Thomas Reed, but I don't have any of that in this part. Uh, it's 1966, and six-year-old Thomas Reed is in his bedroom on his family's horse farm in the Berkshires when the encounters begin. Strange lights, strange figures in the hallway. Suddenly, he's in the woods near his home looking at a UFO. Then he and his younger brother, Matthew, are inside the craft. He's shown a projection of a willow tree. The following year, there is another incident at their home on Boardman Street in Sheffield. More strange lights, the sound of doors slamming, then the boys are back inside the vessel. The next thing Thomas knows, he's in his driveway being scooped up by his mother, who has been searching frantically for the boys on horseback. Um, so yeah, those, were, those stories were left out of the Unsolved Mysteries episode. I guess uh, maybe multiple accounts of being abducted are less believable than just the one. <laughs> I guess. Although yeah. there's lots of accounts, at least, you know, when I've been looking at alien stories that, you know, multiple people often have multiple accounts when they have one, which in some cases you could say, well, that makes it more unbelievable. But sometimes you're like, well, maybe it does. I guess it all depends on the story and the number of witnesses. Yeah. <laughs> These boys don't seem to have any witnesses in any of the others except themselves. Yeah. I mean, when he first started, he was like six years old. I mean. Yeah. But at least his mom and grandma corroborated the others they're like yes like something happened yeah to but us. maybe they just I mean, like were like hey he's been saying this let's yes, just like are you gonna carry it on for the rest of well, his but life then, <laughs> yeah but i'm saying that like sometimes maybe then you say something enough times that you just kind of like you're believing it i yourself. believe that less than something actually happening yeah though. maybe because if something like that actually happens you i mean i don't know or if it doesn't, you don't just make yourself believe that it did. At least, maybe you do. Maybe you do. Maybe you just talk yourself into it. The human mind is a interesting place, you know? <clears throat> yeah. 
you know it took them like six hours with that stanford uh prison experiment for everybody to this go full-on dictator you know what i mean like it's true. So, but I also feel like people will jump through rings of fire before admit that they believe someone was abducted. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's true. So it's like, eh, I don't believe either side most of the time because I'm like, well, your explanation doesn't make sense either. Like swamp gas. Not that you right. said that, but you know, like one of the uh, chiefs of police in the area said, oh, you know, it's just the swamp gas. Like, hmm. Like, whatever. Right. Dude. <laughs> Like, I know you don't care. That's fine. You don't have to call it something it's not, though. I'm right. not an idiot. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, anyway, you're probably right, though. It's something that it's not aliens, in my opinion. <laughs> so, yeah. Weird stuff happening up there a lot. I kind of like some of the government testing theories. I'm like, yeah. Um, anyway. Whatever you do, Thomas Reed says, do not call it an abduction. Reed's account of his family's 1969 encounter with a UFO in Sheffield made headlines last year when it boldly went where few tales of alien sightings have gone before, into the historical record books. This is a story from uh, 2016, by the way. The Great Barrington Historical Society formally inducted the story in February 2015, describing it as, quote, significant and true after reviewing contemporaneous news coverage, witness statements, and polygraph results. A group of local supporters erected a $5,000 monument to Sheffield's brush with the unknown last August, making 2015 a banner year for Reed's long struggle to legitimize his account. But not all has gone well since then. In September, just weeks after the monument's dedication, a still unidentified vandal took a can of spray paint to the monument. Local residents were surprised by the size of the structure, a large white granite brick which features a plaque touting the official induction of our nation's first off-world slash UFO incident. So yeah, they're taking it real seriously. <laughs> which is interesting. Right. Oh yeah. Not everyone was happy with the monument, which was privately funded, but appears in a prominent location near the Sheffield Bridge. That part of it created a little bit of a bad taste in some people's mouths, says Thomas Reed. Or it could have been that somebody took offense to the topic, but nobody really knows why it got vandalized. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. The papers and stories have gotten so ridiculous that the truth has been lost, Thomas said. Or Reed said, rather. First of all, they keep using the cornball terminology you might find, the abduction stuff. That's not what happened. Our family is very credible. We're not a bunch of lunatics. Here's the truth as he tells it. Reed and his family were driving from Ski Butternut in Great Barrington over the Sheffield Bridge when they noticed a bright floating object near their car. They felt what Reed describes as a change in pressure, so it's going over it again, but or an electromagnetic field. A dead silence fell, the light grew brighter, and they found themselves somewhere else. Now, we do remember being in what looked like an airplane hangar. We didn't stay in the car. We were removed from the vehicle. That's true. Where we were, I don't know. Although the town of Sheffield seemed to embrace the Berkshire UFO incident at first, the novelty of the story has worn off among some residents in recent years. Disagreements between those who believe the UFO monument marked a significant event in the town's history and those who saw the monument as an eyesore began to boil over. And in 2019, just about four years after it was erected, the town removed the Berkshire UFO monument. The town's attorney's assessment that the monument had been erected on town property quickly paved the way for lawful removal. According to Reed, there were no issues with the town of officials during the plans to build the ufo monument but officials painted it a, a different story um <clears throat> so now they're see, trying to cover it up pretty much yeah in 2018 a spokesperson for massachusetts governor charlie baker whose signature was sealed onto the ufo monument told the boston globe that the signature had been issued in error the great barrington historical society 
Society, which described the mass Berkshire UFO sighting as a, quote, significant and true event in 2015, backpedaled on its support, too. I think the historical society regrets that our words or our decision has been taken out of context, said Kroll, who added that the incident was significant to the town, but the organization shouldn't have focused on one individual, an obvious reference to Reed. That's probably true, (laughs) because it happened to a lot of people. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, in 2019, after there were no efforts by Thomas Reed and his colleagues to remove the structure, the town hauled away the UFO monument for good. Um, meanwhile, Reed said that he and his colleagues would fight the removal. And so uh, that kind of ends my, you know. All right. It's essentially uh, where it stops there. I had some theories and stuff, but I felt like that ran a little longer than I meant for it to. But, uh, That's fine. The theories aren't all that interesting, though. I mean, it's uh, most of them are Just like, is it real? Is it not real? Or is it like government testing? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, so it's basically nobody knows. And it's kind of one of those stories that people haven't had as much time to talk about as like some of the older stories yeah. that people have known Although for that's a while. been, I mean, that's been like 60 years. It's been that, but I guess almost. not a, not a lot of them had talked about it. Yeah. That's recently. True. So you. it was, uh, you know, more recent, I think even I'm then. going with my theory, handsy uncle. <laughs> that's what I'm gonna I mean, do. it's just as believable <laughs> as anything else at this point. He just gave him some, like some sort of gas, like hydro, what is it? Right. Um, whatever that hydro- is. Over it. Whatever yeah, you put chloroform, over, chloroform, yeah. yeah. No put them to sleep. Get all handsy, but I'm not done with you yet. I'm like, mm. and then like, oh, I'd leave him here. He'll just be like, oh, go, go back home. Right. I mean, he did hear the voice standing at the window in the uh, in the Shaw's house too, though, which said, "Come home now." And yeah, maybe uncle was outside the maybe window. His, yeah. Maybe his uncle was doing tests on him. <laughs> maybe there you go, like a combination of two theories. There we go. <laughs> well, great, and that's the that was the um, goodness. The uh, Berkshires UFO incident is normally right. how it's referred to. And well, check out the uh, we're just assuming mysteries. it sounds like that. Because I'm pretty sure I've heard people in say Massachusetts it don't sound the way that they look. <laughs> I think I've heard people say that though. So. Even though my town that my guy is from, Leo Minster, is actually pronounced Leo Minster. Oh, I've heard of Leo Minster. Uh, well, I'm, I don't know if you've ever heard of John Chapman, but he was from Leo Minster, Massachusetts. I feel like maybe I've heard of John Chapman. Well, you probably have. Um, September, he sounds like a serial killer, and I know he's not. Definitely not. Like I went on a, I went on a nice, on a nice yeah. trip this time. You would say, don't you worry. Did. I'm actually being. Not murderous or cannibalistic or anything like that. I think we're a little more lighthearted this week. <clears throat> yeah, and <clears throat> nobody really disappears either. So, Leah Minster's in, uh, it's northwest of Boston. So, I mean, that's, it's got a, it's the largest city in Worcester County. About or, 40, Worcestershire? It's Worcester. <laughs> I'm assuming that's how they say it. Yeah, I would think so. Um, It's like a 43,000 people town, right? But okay. that's long time from when my guy john chapman <clears throat> was born in 1774 oh wow there were way that back, many people then there wasn't even a united states yet <laughs> this was two years before september yeah. 26 right yeah it was yeah. um his mom was elizabeth his dad was nathaniel uh his dad was a member of continental army and fought at bunker hill so i mean that's how long ago it was yeah um his dad eventually became, became a captain under george washington so i mean Dude, dude had some connections, probably had some money and some power. Yeah. 
unfortunately, his mom died in 1776, giving birth to his brother. And that was while his dad was away. It didn't really say much about where he inhabited. But in 1780, his dad returned to Longmeadow, Massachusetts, which is pronounced that way. <laughs> and L- Long me down? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so he returned and married a woman named Lucy Cooley. And they had 10 kids. Oh, so, wow. And the mother, his, his mother died when she was giving birth to his brother, Nathaniel. Well, the dad remarried to Lucy. They had 10 kids, and one of them was named Nathaniel. So he liked his name. He just kept on everybody's <laughs> yeah, Nathaniel. Yeah, everybody should have it. Um, but while, John, while uh, he was growing up, John's father encouraged him to become an, an orchardist. You ever, an orchardist? I've never heard of an orchardist, I don't think. And the base word is orchard, right? And uh, Yeah. And he was also teaching a, like a business sense in him. So, I mean, like I said, he's definitely got some money and some power. Knows what he's doing with his So, kid. an orchardist is one who owns and maintains an orchard. And nurseries, yes. Okay. Huh. Um, at the age of 18, so this is 1792, John and an 11-year-old brother, Nathaniel, left home and began to head west. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. Um, Go west, baby. Yeah, at, ele- at, ele- at 18 and 11, right? <laughs> um, at this point, when the United States was kind of coming around. 11 was the old 31. <laughs> yeah, you might as well be 40. <laughs> um, anyone willing to move westward and build a homestead on the frontier would get 100 acres of land. So, I mean, it was good. And building orchards was a, and nurseries was a really good business plan. Uh, many land companies said that having orchards was enough to stake a claim of land. So, um, so an orchardist would clear land, plant the nurseries and the orchards, and build protection for the orchard. So, like building fences and walls and stuff. Um, a lot of these land ownership companies, um, you'd plant, you'd, you'd have to plant like let's say fifty peach trees and fifty apple trees. To cons- for them to give you the land that you were... Oh, right. So you know. Like a, a, a quota, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. So, there wasn't much about this, but he had a, an apprenticeship with someone named Mr. Crawford. Oh, so uh, Mr. Maybe, Crawford. Maybe a handsy uncle, who knows. Yeah, brother of Mr. <clears throat> Rogers. Yeah. Not different last names. Um, Brothers, different last names. Mr. Crawford was an orchardist who grew apples. And John planted his first nursery after leaving that apprenticeship in a place called Broken Straw Creek, Pennsylvania. This was 1798. Okay, so John became John started this business. He would go, he'd plant nurseries, build the fences, and then leave the nursery in the care of a neighbor or a homesteader. And he would train the person what to do, and then he would... That person would basically maintain the nursery and the orchard and grow trees. So they grow and sell trees. Right. So he's basically creating franchises of uh, essentially, yeah, of orchards. That's a good way to think of it. Yeah. And every few years he would t- return and and help and check on things and everything else. Right. Because yeah. you don't have to be there all the time. Right. Right. Yeah. You have somebody your owner I mean, when you're starting an orchard, especially. It's not like all these trees are going to start producing fruit the first year or two anyway exactly yeah you're the ceo you're You're basically trying to keep people keeping things off your land and people from settling your land and taking over sure back then too guards essentially Mm -hmm. um so at this time people didn't drink a lot of water right it was 
clean water was really hard to come yeah, by. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, but they sure drank a lot. <laughs> and <laughs> apples were used for turning into cider, brandy, and applejack. I do like me a cider every now and then. Which is apple whiskey. Applejack is like super Ooh. heavy. Dude. It's like apple moonshine almost. Hmm. Um, at the time, what do you think the average person, this is around the turn, around of 1800, the average person in the United States, how much do you think that they drank of, of cider in a year? <laughs> On average. Um, in gallons. Uh, 25 gallons. Yeah, 35 gallons. Oh, wow. I was close like The average person was drinking 35 gallons of hard cider mostly. Wow. And also using it as currency. So, you know, you trade your, <laughs> your cider for beans right. or whatever, right? Um, they also used apples to make vinegar, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which was a great thing to have because people needed to preserve food because it was the 18th scare. Didn't have right? refrigerators. Freezers. Right. And so that was really, like, vital. Those things were vital for westward, westward expansion, right? Right. So, um, it was pretty low cost to get into this orchard work too because you're just getting seeds like john would go to cider presses and just take their seeds they didn't want them they're just throwing it all out so he'd just take their mm. seeds and then he'd go and plant and then the land was dirt cheap then right right so, right yeah it was just getting cheap land and filling it with trees right um the next 50 years of his life Chapman would travel from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, Indiana, and Illinois, planting and tending his nurseries. Like, is his nickname Juicy Juice? Yeah, uh, and he lived <laughs> off the land, right? Nice. He, uh, I don't know if you, you, so have you heard of him? Do you think you've heard of him? Does this sound anything uh, familiar? No, no, it does not. The you, name did at first. But you, no, you maybe you know him by what would most people would know him as i was getting the feeling that eventually i was going to know who he was well yeah. in 1822 a letter was written from a member of the new church with the first known use of the name that we know now know john chapman as okay so johnny appleseed uh, spent his life huh. on the edges of the frontier Isn't that ridiculous i didn't come up with that yeah I was even giving it to you. Yeah, you completely. Sure now I realize that. that. I'm sure there were people screaming. I'm so gullible. You were like, was his name Apple J- yeah. Johnny Juicy or something? Yeah, I'm over here being Dr. Ernest. <laughs> like, hello, Dr. Ernest. Are you being serious over there? Like, um, Johnny Appleseed spent his life on the edges of the frontier. So, like, he was, you know, westward expansion. This is still before a lot of these places yeah. were. And he was doing his apple thing, right? <laughs> yeah, he was uh, make the country apples. Yeah, and he basically, from, you'll find out, this guy was like the first hippie, dude. Like, okay, yeah. Um, he lived really simply, and I'm talking like he he never, he never was barefoot all the time. Oh, wow. Winter, spring, it didn't matter. Yeah. He was always barefoot. He wore what they described coarse pants, a coffee sack with holes cut out for his head and arms, he had a wild and unkempt beard and eyes that were glowing embers. <laughs> um, this lady, Rosella Rice, who late later met Chapman, like when he was an older man, she wrote in the history of Ashland County, Ohio, his personal t- appearance was as singular as his character. He was a small chunked man, quick and restless in his motions and conversation. Chunked. Yeah. Um, his beard, though, not long, was unshaven and his hair was long and dark. And his eye black and sparkling. He lived in the roughest life and often slept in the woods. His clothing was mostly old, being generally given to him in exchange for apple trees. He went barefooted and often traveled miles through the snow in that way. 
He wore on his head a tin utensil, which answered both as a cap and a mush pot. (laughs) So, um, Johnny was a member of the Church of New Jerusalem. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. I don't think so. They, uh, Church of New Jerusalem uses the, the belief system of a guy named Swedenborg was his last name. Hmm. And, uh, it was naturist type of thing. Okay. Um, it's a church. It's a Christian de- denomination, uh, but more focused on the natural world and living with nature. So almost like a Christian Sikh, you know okay. what I mean? Yeah. Um, it teaches that faith without charity is not faith and that charity without faith is not faith. Okay. Or it's not charity. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like you lost yeah. me there. Hold on. <laughs> so if you, you, you're, you should be living for others and doing for others. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. Um, and because of his religion, too, Johnny was something that a lot of people at this time were definitely not. Remember, he's a hippie. Mm-hmm. He's also a vegetarian. Oh, wow. Uh, he would avoid harming animal, animals, uh, even though hunting and, quote, clearing out areas for settlers was basically what everybody was doing. Yeah. Oh, there's something. Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. We need to make room for us. Uh so one story has it that he once found an injured wolf and nursed it back to health and the wolf stayed with Johnny it's like his pet wow. for years yeah um it said it was said that quote Chapman took not a whit of precaution against such wilderness dangers not a whit was heedless of his own personal safety would rather have been bitten by a rattler or mauled by a bear than defend himself against one so hmm. um this author named Henry Howe in the early 19th century visited all the counties in Ohio and this whole area that Johnny would spend his time in and collected several stories from the 1830s. That's, you know, when his heyday, essentially. Right. Um, it's heyday. <laughs> one of the stories was one cool aut- autumnal night while lying by his campfire in the woods, he observed that the mosquitoes flew in the blaze and were burned. Johnny, who wore on his head a tin utensil, which answered both as a cap and a mush pot, filled it with water and quenched the fire, and afterwards remarked, God forbid that I should build a fire for my comfort, that I should destroy the means, that should be the means of destroying any of his creatures. I'm sorry. Uh, Another time he allegedly made a campfire in a snowstorm at the end of a hollow log in which he intended to pass the night, but found it occupied by a bear and cubs. So he removed his fire to the other end and slept in the, on the snow in the open air rather than to disturb ba- the bear. Well, yeah, it's probably a better idea that way anyway. <laughs> right. Um, Johnny was known to purchase horses that were going to be put down, and mend them back to health, and then release them or give them to other settlers. Hmm. So, I mean, he was definitely living the living the what Doing he, what he wanted to do and helping people. But he stuff. was, like, yeah. living his beliefs. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, when Johnny would come to town, he would entertain people with stories, right, of the frontier. Basically, eighteen you hundreds know, YouTube. You yeah, because yeah. um, this is some wild man that lives in the woods. Yeah, probably. I don't know if he. I mean, people drank. Even people, religious people, drank. So yeah, he was a cider man. Probably he was probably drinking. Get drunk and tell stories wearing, of the world. Wearing yeah. coffee sacks and ten ten pots on his head right. and like wandering around, right. And when he would come to towns, he would give the girls ribbons. And to entertain the boys, it said that he would take pushpins or needles and put them into his feet all the way in and not 
feel a thing because he was always barefoot. His feet were just hardened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, People would invite him to eat, and he would... He'd come. He'd people when he'd come to town. People would invite him in to eat, and like he'd basically like preach to them and tell them stories and what we would call mission work, basically. Yeah. Um. People would often refuse to let him stay in the house, though, and would have him sleep either in the barn or outside, mostly because of what they called the wee beasties that he brought along with him. <laughs> the wee beasties yeah. covered in lice oh right and I got insects you. and stuff yeah, I mean yeah. he's like an out guy, outdoors guy right yeah um, so one thing you don't know about him is that he also planted dog fennel which is which at the time was thought to be a useful medicinal herb right hmm. uh, nowadays it's regarded as a noxious invasive weed <laughs> And so I said, I guess Johnny Appleseed sounded better than Johnny Dog Fennel Seed. You know? Right. Yeah, like um, apples he, and dog fennel. Yeah, well, he, he, I mean, he was, I'm sure he was building, like, whole areas that had all sorts of different layers of things. Because he was also, he was very friendly with a lot of the native tribes that he would encounter. Because he was always on the edges. And, mm-hmm. like, he would trade and, like, learn, treat, teach them how to do stuff. And they'd teach him how to grow things. They would trade medicinal herbs and things like that right yeah he's a hippie man he's he's yeah just an early hippie. smoking peace pipes and you know. <laughs> right um and he refused to use grafting which is you know pretty common especially in that to like build your plants better and better bloodlines of the of the fruits that you're trying to grow right because his religion kind of forbade that like you, you live with nature as it is right um and because of that and his training, he's essentially the reason we have some of the varieties of apples, including <laughs> some of the delicious breeds, like the red delicious and that kind of thing. Um, wow. So not grafting the plants actually allowed them to naturally change to based on the area that they were planted in, right? Yeah. And, I mean, now there's I mean, there's thousands of – I mean, they said you could have, like, 20 years to eat a different – species of apple every day and you wouldn't eat the same one if you had a different one every day thank you johnny appleseed Uh, and he's not necessarily responsible for all of those obviously but all over the world yeah um so we know him to wear a pot on his head which you know may or may not be true but he was a barefoot coffee sack wearing vegetarian hippie that stuck pins in his feet to amuse the kids so you know who really knows right um many accounts have him actually wearing three hats a brim a pot and on top of that a crown so i mean he's also like probably a halfway insane yeah, i can person, recall right? seeing some like drawings and stuff of, of yeah such you've a seen guy. him like you know he's just all like torn up clothes yeah. and like this pot on his head and like yeah. smile on his face disney made stuff i mean it's, yeah. he's somebody that the legend is who knows where the legend is and the myth mythos of johnny appleseed yeah. there's a lot of it that's may be exaggerated but i mean he, they, there's enough known about him that i mean he's obviously a real guy yeah you know um most legends are exaggerated right uh it's reported that he used his pot to carry his uh swedenborg liter- literature all the church of new jerusalem stuff right just keep that to yourself keep it dry John. you know I mean, he's carrying sacks of apple seeds. I don't know if he, he probably didn't have a lot of bags. He wasn't pulling like a bunch of rolling suitcases behind him, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, because of his lavish lifestyle, his sedentary ways, and his religion—mostly <laughs> his religion—Johnny never married. 
Um, <laughs> it's like Skippy. Yeah. Yes. Check him out. Uh, but he was said to have been in frequent spiritual intercourse with departed spirits of the female gender who consoled him with the news that they were to be his wives in the future state. Spiritual intercourse. Yes. He was basically, he was waiting until he died. Hmm. He was going to get married in heaven. All right. right. All right. He was waiting to spread his apple seed to the ladies in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, so, on either March 18th or the 27th, and the record isn't completely clear because of the time, uh, while staying with a friend, Johnny didn't wake up. He was dealing with pneumonia at the time, and he died at the age of 71. Oh, that's pretty old for back then, though, right? Yeah, especially I mean, for some, like, wilderness guy yeah. with no shoes, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably never saw a doctor in his life. Probably not. I mean, huh. eating apples a day, every yeah, day. Yeah, there you go. I mean, these weren't Most of these weren't apple-eating anyway. They were more used for all sorts of other things. They oh, were like, we right. would call them crab apples is basically what he was growing. Making ciders out of them, though. Yeah. Like you said before. Um, one, obituary, uh, one obituary, sorry, read, the deceased was well known through this region by his... Uh, uh, eccentricity i can't say that word eccentricity eccentricity sorry still can't say it and the strange (laughs) garb he usually wore he followed the occupation of a nurseryman and has been a regular visitor here upwards of 10 years he was the native of massachusetts we understand but his home if home he had for some past years was in the neighborhood of cleveland where (laughs) he had has relatives living but i mean this wasn't cleveland like today cleveland right (laughs) 1850 1840 cleveland right um he is supposed to have had considerable property yet denied himself almost the common necessities of life not so much perhaps for avarice from his peculiar notions on religious subjects he was a follower of swedenborg and devoutly believed that the world the more he endured in this world the less he would have to suffer and the greater he would would be his happiness hereafter all right he submitted to every privation with cheerfulness and content, believing that in so doing, he was securing snug quarters hereafter. So, I mean, he, he lived his life because he thought living a good life here would, and a simple life would make his life in the afterlife that much better. Yep, yep. Um, you know, he backed up what he believed in. I'm cool with that. Yeah, I'm all right I nev- with that I, as well. As a kid, I never really knew that. He was basically like a Jehovah's Witness wandering around yeah, I didn't the woods. Know. Right? I didn't like, know that side of the story. Um, yeah. In the most inclement weather, this is still part of that obituary. In the most inclement weather, he might have been seen, might be seen barefooted and almost naked, except when he chanced to pick up articles of old clothing. Notwithstanding the privations and exposure he endured, he lived to an extreme old age, not less than 80, 80 years at the time of his death. But he was seventy-one. <laughs> this is just a newspaper in Fort Wayne. Um, though no person would have judged him from his appearance that he was 60. So he looked younger than he was. Yeah. Um, He's probably in pretty good shape, actually. Yeah. Uh, let's see. He always carried with him, with him some work on the doctrines of Swedenborg, which he was perfectly familiar and would readily converse and argue on his tenets, using much shrewdness and penetration. His death was mm. quite sudden. He was seen on our streets a day or two previous. So it was definitely a sudden kind of thing. But, I mean, he lived out in the woods. He got pneumonia, and yeah. it was just time to go. Uh, his Should've sister... pulled back from all that penetration. Yeah. Just <laughs> religious penetration. Um, his sister inherited his 1,200 acres, 
which he probably had more, but you know he was a nomadic wood hippie, so he didn't have the best bookkeeping. <laughs> nomadic wood hippie. Um, and eventually, after court cases and other issues, including the price of the trees being sold, so the price after he died, there was a big economic collapse, and the price of the trees that were being sold by his orchards had dropped by two thirds. Oh wow! And she had to sell off land to pay taxes. She lost almost all the land that he bequeathed her. Wow. Um, He's buried in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Archer Graveyard by the uh, Horticulture Society of Indiana. And his tombstone says, Johnny Appleseed, John Chapman. He lived for others, 1774 to 1845. wonder why Indiana. That's where he died. Oh, right. I think he was just like a guy that, like, wherever he was, that was where he was, you know. I mean, he was back and forth. He was born in Massachusetts, but he was back and forth his whole life. He was just making round trips, basically. Yeah. Um, There's an apple tree in a town called Nova, Ohio, that's 180 years old, which most those types of trees have an average life of 15 to 40 years. Oh, wow. And it's the last known tree to have been planted by Johnny Appleseed. So that's in Nova, Ohio. (laughs) And ironically, the only reason that this tree is still alive is because it's been grafted. Uh, that tree still produces tart green apples, which are used for making applesauce, baking, and producing hard cider. <laughs> I don't know if they actually use those particular ones, but that's the species. That's essentially what kind of... You weren't eating those apples unless you were really hungry. Right, right, right. Um, Fort Wayne has a minor league baseball team now, and they're called the Ten Caps. <laughs> and the mascot's named Johnny. That's pretty cool, and, actually. Yeah. Um, there's been poems, songs... There's a U.S. stamp. Hmm. Um, in Leominster, Massachusetts, the ab- the uh, elementary school is called, or one of the elementary schools is Johnny Appleseed Elementary. <laughs> um, Michael Polan, who was an author that did a lot of research for um, Johnny, said that because of Johnny being against grafting, his apples were only for use in making cider. And really what Johnny Appleseed was doing and the reason he was welcoming every cabin in Ohio and Indiana was he was bringing the gift of alcohol to the frontier. He was on our, he was our American Dionysus. <laughs> so, I mean, you don't think about it, but I mean, a lot of that types, those types of people as silly as it is with right. some of the, like the folklore, I don't doubt that the guy wandered around in the woods and Sure. Being barefoot, it seems like he probably was. Everything I saw and read about, he seemed to be barefoot. Like, yeah. like he it just, was a thing. He just like put pins in his feet to right. show off to the kids. So, but yeah, there's that song. It's like, oh, the Lord's been good to me, and so I thank the Lord for giving me the things <laughs> I need: the sun and the rain and the apple tree. The Lord's been good to me. You ever hear that? I'm not sure if I'm familiar with that. That's like the Johnny Appleseed song. Oh, so. Okay. Huh. They were cartoons well and done, stuff. Well done, by the know. way. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, that's the kind of the voice that the... He's a little bit higher, but I can't go much higher. So. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's Johnny Chapman, oh. John Chapman, or Johnny Appleseed. That was a good one. Yeah, probably the... Technically, probably the most famous person we might have ever done on this. As might far be. as, like, the legend, legendary yeah, status. Yeah, I mean, of, Johnny and, Appleseed's pretty big. Yeah. So, there you go. From Massachusetts. Yeah. Well done. Good one. Yeah. It was a good one. Should I clap? Yeah. No. You no never already... clapped before. Yeah. That's right. We're not clapping. <laughs> so, yeah. I felt the need to clap. And I hope you guys enjoyed the trip to, uh, what was it, the Bay State? 
I'm yeah, sure we got it wrong. That is one of them, the Bay State. The, 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 the Puritan them. State. The Puritan State. The Baked Bean State. The Baked Bean State, indeed. Our I, sixth uh, state. It was the Cod State, too? Or is yeah, that the yeah, Cod, Cod State? Cod Peace State is a different one. <laughs> yeah, that's a different right. one. Um, so, yeah. Uh, go on organdonor.gov. Yeah. Donate your cods. Just remember that uh, Obamacare started in Massachusetts as Romney Care with Mitt Romney as the oh, yeah. creator. Learned that today, too. And uh, it's wildly successful and popular up there <laughs> and throughout. <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah, oh, organdonor.gov. And, uh, yeah. We appreciate you guys. Tell everybody. Seriously, tell your friends. Listen to us. Tell them all. Tell them to send us send emails. Send us emails. We want to hear it. Angry emails. Only for Chris. Only Chris gets the angry ones. Yeah, abuse me. All right, we'll see you guys on the next one. Bye. Massachusetts Vacation Kit, call 1-800-624-MASS.